Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of The Teacher's Point of View. This week's episode, we've got Alicia Hill, who's, um, uh, who's, who's a senior leader within a, within an inner London school. And uh, she talks to us about her journey, her career path, and how she's got to where she's got to. Uh, she talks about the challenges over COVID and how difficult it's been. Um, yeah, I hope you guys like the episode. Thanks. Hi, Alicia. Um, welcome to the teacher's point of view. I mean, uh, thanks for having us today. Uh, thanks for sort of coming on the show today. Um, can you sort of explain to everybody your journey and sort of what you do and how you've got to where you've got to? Hi, I'm TJ. Um, my name is Alicia. Um, so thank you so much for having me on your show this morning. It's a great pleasure. I started out in teaching purely by accident, really. Um, I think I went in to do some voluntary work at a local school in their English department. And so I was actually um, deployed to teach Year 7 English. Um, at the time, we were, they were reading a book called Journey to Joe Berg in Year 7. And um, it so happened that I was told at the time that I was brilliant with these young Year 7s and their, their progress had increased within such a short time. And as a result of that, both the head teacher and the head of the English department encouraged me to take up um, the teaching training program. So I did that. And um, whilst I was actually training to, to become a teacher, I found myself to be head of uh, business and economics, basically head of faculty, head of quality across the school, and um, uh, basically leading CPD trainings for um, trainees such as myself. And... Um, I was actually quite surprised that I was in that position in such a short time because I'm absolutely certain that there are times I had no idea what I was doing, but I had great believers and they, they empowered me to do um, the best and be the best that I can be and encouraged me and ensure that I had the best mentoring and the best coaching whenever I needed. And, you know, I've always had someone there to turn to whenever I needed an advice. And so once my training uh, finished, I then went on to actually began uh, mentoring and coaching practitioners across the school and then um, leading across um, the network in terms of teaching and learning, CPDs and insects and so on. And so basically, I would say really I was, I was quite fortunate in a sense that I had the right um, professionals, the right practitioners around me to uh, lead by examples and those that I could actually emulate and bring in my own characteristic, my own personality and so on. So that, that journey for me was built from those who believed in me, those who invested in, um, uh, well, actually I was told that I'm quite tenacious. At the time I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> big word. <laughs> So, but along the, the way, I, I thoroughly enjoyed myself. My, my, my students were paramount in the essence of my development and building relationships with them within the classroom and outside the classroom, within the playgrounds, uh, canteen, and, sh and sharing what I was actually doing with, with these young people was, was amazing because that then transpired to my classroom. When they came to my classroom, they wanted to learn because I'd created a love for learning environment for them. And because I'd not just walked around the school and, and, and just 
there be a teacher and just I actually sat, had lunch with them, went into the courtyard, played basketball with them, kicked the football and, you know, things, little things like that, just finding out what they actually do like, how was their weekend, and then bring that into the curriculum, into the classroom. So, so from there, I believe quite possibly not too long after that, I then became an assistant head teacher because I had the experience behind me for leading school, um, leading uh, network CPD trainings for different schools and visiting other schools in different areas and looking at that, what they're doing in their school and implementing strategies to, for them to actually adapt in their school going back and monitoring those strategies and, and, and looking at the impact that it has at this measurability of that and reporting back to them. So um, being in leadership, it was quite challenging. and It has its, its reward and it's quite challenging. I think some people have uh, misconcepted ideas about being in, in leadership. They think that one just sits in a classroom and do the administrative um, daily duties, but it's never the case. It, it, it's far from that. You've got to reach out to the community, reach out to the bread and butter of the school, the middle leaders, the support workers, and those people that actually hold up the school itself. And um, so far, uh, I'm actually enjoying myself. Really. Just, just um, sort of picking up on what you've said about. Um, this is a misconception of senior leaders. And I think, I think that's, a, that's a really important point, actually, because I've spoken to many teachers in my time that sort of explain, well, they sort of question why senior leaders get paid so much when teachers are on the front line in classrooms working with the kids on a daily basis, um, especially with there being such budget constraints within schools. Um, what would you say to those teachers of, of that, that question, why you're on higher money than those teachers? I think that there's a, a disparity. There's, there's some, there are some sort of um, confusion there. I, I don't believe that is the case at all. I, I genuinely don't believe that is the case because you do have teachers in the classroom that earns quite a lot more than senior leaders. Yeah. And there are, there are. I'm sure there are people out there who will actually tell me the same thing. No, of course. I mean, how hard is it to be a senior leader? I mean, obviously you've gone and it, you've, you've rapidly sort of progressed in your career. I mean, not, not every teacher sort of embarks on the same journey as you and you've sort of gone from an NGT to head of faculty to assistant head and sort of within the space of a very short time, right? I mean, like I said, not, not very many teachers do that. Sometimes it takes teachers 10 years to 15 years to sort of get into SLT roles. I mean, what, what has been different for you? What, what do you think that's made you stand out compared to other NQTs? Um, I, I wouldn't say it was completely um, plain sailing. There were obstacles. There were obstacles. But it's to find that inner power to push yourself forward and to rise above those obstacles or, or, or those situations that you might find yourself in. And also to be reflective. I think once you're reflective on your daily practice, that can be the most powerful um, aspects for any practitioner is to look at what you're doing and, um, and to think, how could I have done that differently? How could I have responded differently? And how could I have addressed that situation differently? And what is it that I could have done 
you know, look at your teaching. What it, how could I plan my lesson properly? How could I have differentiated it? And how, how could I have reached out to my teaching groups differently and, and be reflective of your daily practice? So I would say far, far mostly first is to be reflective. And, and, and I, I won't say that reflection comes easy. It's quite difficult to be reflective. It's difficult to look at yourself and to acknowledge when you've not gotten it right. And, and it's difficult to actually say it out loud and to put it pen to paper. So that comes with practice in itself. And I think for me, um, my background had a great deal to do with how I look at things and how I approach things. Um, being the eldest of seven, I had a lot of responsibility at home. So responsibility was always embedded and um, education at home was quite serious. So um, so I took that in the front of the classroom. I took the seriousness of education and empowering young people within the classroom. And, I, and for me, I made a pact to myself that no children that I come in contact with will ever have to question why they've not gotten that grade because I would you know, stay in the classroom with them. I would go in on weekends to ensure that those gaps that were identified through uh, my data process or looking at my data or looking at my assessment were shared with those young people and ensure that I communicated effectively with parents. And those, those stakeholders who were concerned, who are concerned with those young persons, to, to, okay, have a look at this. This is what I've discovered. This is where your child is. How best can we work together to ensure that we close those gaps? And look at the gaps and share those gaps with the young person. What is it that you as a child or a student can do? What would you like to do? What would you like to work at? How best can I facilitate your need? And I think once you go into that approach and you have the passion, it, it should never be about salary one does not go into profession particularly teaching the salary certainly if that's the case and i believe you're in the wrong job absolutely because it has to be your passion <laughs> absolutely i mean like for, for people that are sort of considering teaching um because i think one of the one of the biggest difficulties in attracting sort of graduates to to the teaching profession is probably salary isn't it i mean because like if you're a maths graduate, why wouldn't you go and become a financial analyst, an economist, or something with with a little bit more sort of well, with more money, right? And and I think obviously with recruitment retention being such a such a big topic within education at the moment, um, how how can we attract more graduates to teaching? Because there is less money, there is a lot of hard work, there's a lot of pressure, there's a lot of um, sort of a criticism of the teaching profession. There's a lot of um, parents that complain, and uh, the list goes on, right? I mean, why would anybody get into teaching with all of that scrutiny and the money that is offered? So, um, <clears throat> going back to what I said initially, um, one, it has to be a passion. You've got to be passionate about education. And one has to be passionate about empowering young people. And the moment you have that passion about teaching is exciting. For me, teaching is exciting. I get a, a real buzz out of teaching. I get a real buzz out of being in the classroom. I get a real buzz about 
about being facilitating the classroom. And I get a little buzz out of seeing the enjoyment in young people that I have in my classroom and outside the classroom. And if that isn't happening, then one needs to look at oneself and to be reflective. So it can never be about finances. It should never be about the, the, the M6 or the L2 or the L17 that one needs to get. It should be your inner and most deepest passion. If you are not passionate about educating and evolving our young people, then again, it is not something that um, you, one should enter into. Um, how does school recruit, um, would like to recruit more graduates and, and empower them? You know, the government is doing an enormous amount at the moment in recruiting um, teachers into school. And so, you know, you have the GTP, you have the PGC, you've got the Teach Fast, you have quite a lot of programs. And I think that is going exceptionally well. I think is building in that level of support continuously and rigorously for those young persons to actually to maintain the passion that they initially had in wanting to actually uh, become a practitioner is to have that support network around you to actually lift you up when when you stumble because you will stumble. I mean, we're in a classroom with 32 children. You have quite a lot of dynamics to deal with, learning behaviours in, in many different areas to deal with and is to have that level of support network around you to actually instill and to empower you, not to not to um, bring you down, not to say, oh, you're doing that wrong, but to positively encourage you to say, you're doing brilliantly, you know, continue doing the, the job that you're doing, it's amazing. It's about empowering and instilling that confidence in our young generation that this is a profession that is rewarding, it's, it's fulfilling, and it's, it's amazing to see the outcome at the end of the year, at the end of the day, and, and even within that space of a four to five minute lesson, is to see that level of engagement in the classroom. It's an amazing buzz, honestly. It, it, it's, it's sort of like, you feel so light in that classroom. It's like you actually flow in as a teacher. And when you plan your lesson, lessons are never the same as how you plan it. It's always changing in the lesson because you may throw out a dialogical question and, and a young person may answer it. And you, you filter that around the classroom and you can see the level of engagement, the level of enjoyment. And I think that all encompasses with the passion that they see you as someone who's enjoying their job. And if you're not enjoying your job, and if it's not something that you, enjoy, you know that you enjoy, then you need to really actually reflect on what your impact would be in that classroom. Absolutely. I mean, you, you said... Um you kind of fell into it in some respects. You didn't know you wanted to go into teaching. I mean, you've, you've obviously no, grown. Totally by accident. <laughs> yeah, so obviously you've, you've had this passion sort of for teaching from, like, from the beginning of your career, haven't you, in some respects? I mean, not every graduate goes into the degree thinking they're going to come out or out of the degree and go in to do a PVCE. So they don't, might not necessarily know that how much they love teaching or how much passion they have for teaching until they actually get into the role like you did. Um, how, so it, with those people, how do, we, how do we attract them to the education industry? 
So what we have, you have teachers fair, and also one one thing I would recommend for uh, a graduate is to conduct some work experience within the school. Go in for a term. It's it's quite easy. Send your CV off. Sometimes the head teacher might may take a while to get back to you, but continue and go in. Well, actually, just to hit that nail on the head. For me, initially, I had emailed the head teacher at the time, and I, I believe I sent several emails, and um, nothing was forthcoming. And I literally walked into the school myself, and um, got to the reception. At the reception, would it be possible to speak to the head teacher? She asked me why. I explained to her. Um, fortunately for me, the head teacher decided to see me at the time. And um, I'd gone up to his office, we sat down, explained what I wanted to do. And it's about pushing yourself forward, really and truly, pushing yourself forward. Be, be that person that you want to be, empower yourself. Again, that work experience is absolutely pivotal. Going to school, having that half term or a full term work experience, just to, to tease out whether or not this is something that you want to do. I do feel that, as you rightly said, we do have lots of graduates that go to university and they do a BA in education or they may do a PGCE, whereby they need to attend university and they'll do a two-week placement within the school. And later find that they may not like that and, and, and want to do something else. That is a real issue, which is why one is encouraged to actually spend some time before making a patient. And once you've done that, then you can then decide whether or not this is the right environment for me or for you. Um, and in terms of yourself, like what would you what would you say your biggest obstacles were? I think my biggest obstacles were, uh, at the, uh, I would say, is overlooked. In what way? Um. There were times that I felt that I wanted to move forward and um, I didn't, although I was actually delivering and was an outstanding practitioner, uh, in both in the class and my exam results, I feel that what I wanted at that time wasn't being given or wasn't being, um, I want to choose the right word here. <laughs> I wasn't being facilitated, so I had to push myself forward in order to be where I am. What, what do you think? Why do you think the reason for that was? Why do you feel like you were being held back, whether it be externally or internally? Quite honest, internally, that would be within me, isn't it? So internally, one does not hold oneself back. I'm, all, I'm constantly pushing. <laughs> oh. I'm constantly pushing to to be the best and to constantly push in to be um, the facilitator for our young people and constantly pushing to be the advocate for our young people. Um, externally, professionally, why I felt at the time, quite honestly, I don't know. I don't know why I felt as why I was being held back at the time. I, I don't want to say that this is, that's happened and that's happened because quite honestly, I don't know. Sure. Um, I think, um, I think with everything that's happened this year, um, being with COVID, 
uh, with Black Lives Matter. I mean, like, do you, is there any, I think it's so relevant to talk about this. And if, if you don't want to, that's absolutely fine. We can move on. But um, as do you feel like there's ever been sort of an element of you being a black woman in the industry and, and having challenges because of your skin colour? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but that was an everyday occurrence. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So I could give you an example, particularly if I apply for a job up in the north or something, uh, I think one of the questions would be asked is, well, it, it did ask, um, it was asked, shall I say, what would you know about teaching um, white children up in the north? What, in those um, ways? Exactly, in those words, wow. and, I, and I literally froze because <laughs> I, I froze because I, I didn't at all expect that question. If I think if it had been asked now, it would have been a different case. Then um, I didn't know what to do with that information. So, uh, and I think at one point during my training, I was told that people like you were is not going to get too far. No way. Yes, yeah, so I remember that day. I cried. I cried. I cried till I actually, I actually lost my voice. So yes, um, there were obstacles, but again, I persevered. I used that as my inner power to move forward, and I used that. I used that to be my drive, and my drive is to ensure that young people are successful in education, personally, well-being, and emotionally, and to ensure that they're happy. It's insane. So you had to dig really deep. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well done. I mean, you, you dug deep, and, it, and it's paid off, hasn't it? Um, it? It's insane, because I remember sort of growing up, I'm, I'm an Asian boy, right? And and I grew up in an, an area called Chadwell Heath, so a lot, I had a lot of um, friends that were from a white ethnic background and they I remember it was just after 9-11 and they used to call me the p-word they used to call me all sorts of things right and uh, and it's 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 so important to get that out of out of our systems because we're just people aren't we, we I mean we're, we're just every other like everybody else we just want to make something for ourselves and, and it's very similar to me like I mean I started my own company last year and um I never thought that I'd have the opportunity to do that, you know, and and it's it's a shame that we still have people that are still quite narrow-minded to to judge somebody on their skin colour before they can sort of move up the ladder, and it's it's a shame that that still goes on. I mean, well done for digging deep, though. I mean, talk to me about the last seven months, though. How how is how, how has everything been sort of with COVID and and sort of the the work that you've had to do in your school? Well, I can only speak from a person's perspective. Um, for me, in the last seven months, it's been, I most of the time I've been working at home and um, a lot of my meetings have been via Zoom with, with practitioners, um, obviously. And so and to discuss uh, student progress, looking at the gaps and so on. So it has been challenging uh, on a personal level. and. Um, I'm quite certain I'm, I'm professionally also because we, as practitioners, we love that interaction with young people and we like being in the school environment. Um, so that's that I would say that's where it is for me. Quite a lot of meetings via Zoom and um, just, just being at home, 
not being able to interact with um, many people, families, and so on. And how how difficult has that been? That has been quite quite challenging, which I believe it's it's extremely challenging for everyone across the land, um, emotionally, mentally, physically. Um, not being able to go outside, not being able to um, interact with your family. For example, one of my brother actually was in hospital for 20 days and um, we weren't able to visit. Uh, um, and whereas they're in a different household, I'm not able to, to visit uh, mommy and my brothers and, and so on. So that's been quite emotionally challenged. Um, uh, to date, I, I, do, I have not seen my brother because obviously I'm, I'm, we're very cautious in what to ensure that um, we are safe and we are protecting each other. And it's really imperative to follow the rules and regulations of the law to ensure that we are not in breach and, and, and in any way contaminating anyone. Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult. My sister, she's an assistant head teacher in a school in Havering. And- we, she she stops coming. She hasn't come round our house for, in such a long time because she works with the children and she doesn't want to pass it on to us as well as if we pass anything to her to not be able to go into school. And I think this is one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast is because ultimately there's a lot of lot of being said about the NHS and how they're heroes. But I think I think it's so important to discuss and and, and make people aware how much teachers are doing and. and the heroes that they are also you know like we, we haven't had any claps for the the education staff yet unfortunately which hopefully yeah, at the end of this podcast we will right um but it's it's to get that name out there because you are doing a phenomenal job i mean you're, you're risking your lives every single day to to teach these kids and you're you're sacrificing your personal life and the things outside of work to to be able to accommodate and facilitate the education of the future generation um it, it's such a difficult time isn't it for teachers it's extremely difficult. I, mean, I think one of the most pivotal things that's forgotten is that teachers are human. They have feelings um, just as everyone else. And um, equally, they also have families, and, uh, and that needs to be recognised. And, and they work extremely hard. Um, simply because we're not in the classroom, it doesn't mean that the work has stopped. We work even harder. Our work is 24 hours. It's never stopped. So at the end of a school day, and we've gone home at 5 o'clock or 6 p.m., it still continues because we come home, we plan lessons, we um, analyze data, we, we, look strate- we look at strategic elements, how to move schools forward. And it's, it's never an ending process. So I think that's completely forgotten. And um, and quite possibly not recognised. Uh, I think there's a notion that we have six weeks in cast terms holiday. We're never on holiday. We're never on holiday, to be quite honest with you, because there are so many things to do, so many preparations for the next term, so, so many preparations for the next academic year. One cannot walk into a classroom without having prepared for the next journey of our young people, and therefore it's a continuous process. So what would you say to those, um, those individuals that have said, um, I don't know what teachers are complaining about, they've had the last seven months off? We've not had the last seven months off. That would be my response. <laughs> I mean, just so we can get an idea, like what, what's the general uh, demographics of the school you work in? Where is it located? What are the students like? Um, 
Well, quite honestly, I, I, if, if you don't mind, I, I prefer not to bring my school into this. I think that is fun. Yeah. Yeah, no stress. Um, in terms of like being a part of the SLT though, um, mm-hmm. with, with everything that's gone on with, with COVID, how, how difficult is it to be a part of the senior leadership team? Um, especially with parents, like are, are they supportive? Like do they blame you? Parents are supportive and it is quite challenging. I believe it's quite challenging for every SLT members across the land. Uh, you will have obstacles. It is a difficult time, it's quite challenging and it's an uncertain situation that we're in, we all face it. And so every day has different approaches and every day has different elements and, and, um, it's, and it's to come together as one and to be impactful and to be supportive around your environment and those that are in the room. And those that who haven't reached out to you as yet, it's for you to reach out to them and to be supportive. And, and how difficult is it to build a community with parents and your senior leader mem- like colleagues to, to build a community that sort of supports each other opposed to kind of blames each other? Um, within, within the education setting, um, community-wise is always going to be challenged because, as you rightly point out in the initial set of our conversation, that um, parents um, will say, they've parents will say that, that is always going to be that, and that's always been the case. Um, you have challenging parents, you have supportive parents, and also it's to create that buy-in. Uh, you will not always get that buy-in, but I think eventually through hard work and perseverance, constant communication and positive reassurance, you will get that buy-in. Yeah, okay. I mean, like, do you feel that with everything going on that more could be done from sort of the government or from, from a school's perspective? Like, do you, it, are we doing everything we can to support these kids? Uh, when you say we, are you making reference to the government or? We, we as a country. Is it We more? as a country, um, it's, it's complicated. It's really complicated. And I, I don't think anyone can actually sit down and say, we as a country, we're not, and we are, and we're not doing enough. I think it's, it's deeper than what we actually think because there are so many elements around um, the situation and it's to look at every aspect of those elements and try your best to meet those needs. It is, it's very difficult to meet every needs of everyone that you come in contact with, but it's just to demonstrate a level of understanding. I think that's where the key is. It's, it's try to understand the situation it's pointless talking about the situation if, if you lack the understanding. And it's to put yourself in that situation and to, and to look at it and to analyse it. Then you'll know how to respond to it and reach out to those people, actually. Those are the key people that you need to reach out to. Say, what is it that's going on in your environment? I need to talk to the public, but I don't know what to say. And, and get those responses from those people who are actually, as you said, at the front line dealing with this situation because only they can respond effectively and hopefully put in strategic elements, strategic um, support in how to respond to those things. And if you've not done that, then you will have a challenge. There will be a challenge. Again, you need to reach out to the educationalists, you need to reach out to the teachers, 
you need to reach out to the SLTs and likewise, reach out to the young people. Listen to those young people because they know what they're actually facing. Reach out to the parents. They are experiencing the situation. It's very well well standing there and saying, okay, this is what we're going to do. But have you spoken to those that have been affected? Until you have done that, I don't think you fully understand what we're doing. Sure. I mean, I, I personally, I mean, correct, I mean, you may have a different opinion on this, but I, uh, with Gabrielle Williamson and, and Boris Johnson, between the two of them, teaching teachers how to teach when they've never actually walked into a classroom themselves and worked with 30 kids. I mean, with everything that you've said, I almost feel like <laughs> they haven't done enough, right? I mean, I feel like they've, they've asked you to do certain things, act in a certain way, but they've never been in a classroom. Like, how frustrating is it as an educator when, when somebody that's never taught tells you how to teach? <laughs> well, um, frustration. Um, I wouldn't say frustration. <laughs> I, would, I, I personally think you would laugh. <laughs> if you've not been in the classroom, how can you then tell me how to deliver a lesson? That would be my question. And, and no, frustration, it's more... It's more that I will try to model to you how to deliver a lesson in the classroom. And I would show you what the impact of that would be. And then, but frustration for me, other people might differ. You might speak to other interviewees and they'll say, yes, it's extremely frustrating to have someone tell me how to deliver a lesson in the classroom. But I always find that as a power. It's a very good tool for me. The moment you're telling me to deliver a lesson in the classroom, what exactly are you looking for? And how can you determine and judge my lesson? Absolutely. I found it absolutely mind-blowing when Gavin Williamson, sort of at the beginning of the, of the academic year in the summer, sort of was um, telling teachers how to teach. And the, the guy's only been in the Secretary for Education since like last November, I believe, from the top of my head. And it's, it's insane because he was like the Ministry of Defence or something before. So it's completely out of education related, you know, and uh, it, it, it's, I find it so bizarre. I mean, with everything that's going on as well, like they, uh, what's your view on the free school meals over the holidays? Because every year prior to this year, I know it's a little bit different this year, but prior to this year, every year the kids don't get free school meals over um, the holidays. I mean, why, why is it that much more important this year for, for students to, to get this free, get free school meals over times like half term and Christmas? Free school meals should always be imperative. It shouldn't be because um, that currently there's a campaign around it um, by the, the young footballer, which oh, is my, my daughter's a massive fan of. <laughs> yes. Um, but on a serious note, that should ne- that it should never have gotten to this stage. I really um, take my hat off to that young man um, and respect what he's doing. And you know, it's it's disappointing that politicians did not realise that, and for this campaign to happen, and for them to actually now acknowledge, it should always be an element to support our young people. This is why we pay tax in this country. Absolutely. And if we're paying tax and we're putting it into the system and we have 
socioeconomic groups that cannot afford, it's imperative that those tax um, monies or, or funds are facilitated in, in the right way. So that should always should have always been paramount. And quite honestly, that that's 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 quite disappointing and in some ways painful because you look at the situation for a young person within the family. Um, just to backtrack slightly, uh, as you brought that up, a few months ago I was actually watching. GMTV, I think there was a young boy on GMTV, I don't know if you saw that program yourself, whereby, uh, I think from East London, and he spoke about the importance for him having school meal, that fresh, warm breakfast, lunch, and dinner prior to going home. And a lot of our young people within this country do look forward to their meals because Often enough, you do find that that's the only meal that they have. And um, even thinking about it now, I'm getting quite emotional because you're in that environment and you know what happens and and you can see what happens. And if some children, if they don't eat within the school, then they'll have nothing to eat when they get home because that's that's sometimes the case. And, And to deprive them of this is an awful shame. So... It shouldn't have taken a massive campaign as it is now for the government to to ensure that our young people eat and get what they actually should have. It It should have been. It is heartbreaking. It should have been absolutely pivotal at the forefront of every educational system that young people of all ages, of all backgrounds, whether it be rich, poor, everything should have free school meal. Absolutely. I mean, you, you've obviously spoken about the campaign Marcus Rashford done, and, and yeah, it's phenomenal. I mean, he, he's he's an inspiration to a lot of people, I'm sure, at this time. Absolutely. Um, it, it's, it's just unfortunate. I, I read an article yesterday, um, Boris Johnson, is, he, he's standing firm on not, not providing free school meals um, or extra funding for free school meals. And um, he, him and Rishi both have sort of explained that oh, in June, councils were given a budget of 63 million right? And uh, the councils have sort of come back and said, well, no, it, that, that's only lasted a certain amount of time. I mean, we, we, we need more money to be able to feed these kids. And they're, they're standing quite firm on not sort of um, taking a U-turn on their decision, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what, what more can we say to them to, to help them push their decision and, and, and offer free meals? Because it's crucial right now, especially with so many people being out of jobs, a um, lot of families that are not having an income, and like you said, I mean, I spoke to a head teacher on Monday and, and she's informed me that they know that certain kids aren't going to get uh, meals when they, when they um, go home that evening. So they try to leave any leftover food for lunch. They, they give it to those kids so they can take home um, mm-hmm. to, to, to support them and their families. So, I mean, what, what message can we send out to the government? to, to make? I think the government is... Needs to take, if they think that we don't, they don't have the budget, take the money out of your pocket. You earn enough money. Take the money out of your pocket and ensure that it's spent on these young people. You, I mean, when you go home as a politician, you'll have your steak and your, 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 your keys and, and, and your champagne. Take that money that you're using to buy your steak and your champagne and spend it on our young people. That is simple. It's very well standing there and talking 
And as soon as you get home, you're having the most expensive meal. Spend that money on young people. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, from, from the school's perspective, and, 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 you know, there's going to be a lot of people that will question, why can't schools just provide extra meals? Like, well, obviously, I know that there's budget restrictions, but in terms of the difficulty of that, that sort of, um, for people to say that, like, how difficult is it to, to be, for schools to provide extra meals for these students? Well, um, I think if, if you're speaking about budget and so on, it goes back to what you said earlier on. Um, the government said that they've not had enough money to put into this. So if the government's not facilitating this, it, it, it will be challenging for schools to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, could, could the government do more? I'm sorry, I didn't quite get you there. Sorry, could, could the government do more? Again, yes, the government should always do more. They're doing very small at the moment and they should actually put their money where their mouth is. They're actually doing a lot of talking, but they need to spend money. Our young people are our future generation and we need to invest in our future generation. And if we don't do that, there will be a massive gap in our system going forward. Absolutely. Um, and this is, again, one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast, because teachers they, they are making a considerable effort to to help the future of our economy i mean these kids are the future of our economy aren't they and we're already sort of facing a backlog from from like not being able to teach them last year and and obviously this year is going to be a bit of a struggle and uh, whether these gcse a level exams are delayed by three weeks or not who knows i mean things change every two months um if not two weeks um and like what as as a, as a whole, um, we need more teachers in, in the industry, don't we? Absolutely. We always need more teachers. It's, it's an amazing profession to be in. And I would personally encourage every young person to actually go out there and offer support to school, whether it be voluntary or paid. We do need more teachers. We need a lot of teachers with passion, passion within the classroom passion for our young people, passion to, to autonomise our young people to be successful, passion to make a change going forward. And with, with everything that's going on, why, why, would, why do we need teachers more than ever, A, and B, why would in the, like, graduates, want, why should they go into teaching? Because like, they're probably pooing their pants, right? They're probably so worried about getting into schools. You're on the front line. Um, why, why should they be encouraged to get into teaching right now? Can I just say, you've mentioned frontline quite a bit. Teachers are always on frontline. Yeah. It is, it's not because of the current situation where we're on frontline. We are always on frontline. Every single day, our lives are at risk on the frontline. We're dealing with many different situations. So, and, and likewise, it's, it's never about now. It's it should not be about now and it should not be to say that oh it's the current situation we have always been on the front line we are the local parent or we are we are everything to these young people so we are always there we're we are their parents we are their practitioners we are we are there to support and to instill and to empower and we come across many many different situations every single day per hour 
So yes, it's not now that we're in the front line. We've always been from the moment we walk into education, yeah. whether it be in the building or outside, we're on the front line because our job is 24 hours and it never stops. We don't. We may have six weeks holiday. We may have two weeks off. We may have a week off. We're never on holiday. We're always on the front line. Yeah, and. Uh, it is extremely, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Because a lot of people say, well, you've got 13 weeks off in a year. Like, what are you, what are you complaining about? But it's not that, it's not the case. You're planning a market, you've got a lot of data put in. I mean, especially as SLT, like, I mean, the level of data input has increased over the years anyway, hasn't it? Because it's much more systematic than it used to be 10, 20 years ago. Um, it's quite insulting when uh, someone says to you, oh, but you're on holiday. What does that mean? Yeah. What does exactly. that mean? <laughs> oh, exactly. I mean, anyone that's doing their PGC at the moment or looking to get into teacher training, but in particular those people that are doing their PGC at the moment, what advice can you give them? My advice is to be reflective and continue to build on your network. It's, it's, it's an amazing, rewarding profession to be in and to reach out if you're struggling reach out to your, your network and, and, and reach out to people that are not in your network. There are so many people on, online. Tap into online and um, reach out to groups and ask for support and I'm quite sure you'll be supported. Yeah, fantastic. Um, no, that's, that's amazing. I mean, for you as, as somebody in a senior leader position, what would you look for in anybody that's becoming a teacher or that's going to be applying to work in your school? Well, not specifically my school. I would say any school um, is to be um, confident and resilient. And again, it's that passion about what is it, why? What is it that you can bring to these young persons and how are you able to facilitate that? And at the same time, how best can we support you? And how best can do you think? What support do you think that you will need along your journey? Fantastic. Um, now that's. I mean, look, we'll, we'll wrap it up there, right? I mean, you've 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 spoken to us quite a lot. I mean, we've gone through some fantastic topics. Um, is there anything that you'd like to add, or is there anything that you'd like to say, whether it be to the government, whether it be to future teachers or graduates, um, or just parents? Like, is there a message that you'd like to get out that we can we can well, finish the podcast on? Well, well, I would say it's it's a rewarding profession, and um, I would say continue with the amazing work that you're doing, and uh, welcome to the journey because it's quite fulfilling, and to know that you have a student or students in your classroom that quite possibly weren't able to access the curriculum and, and by the end of the term that child made progress and it's it's a deep inner um, gracious feeling and, and to see that enjoyment on that particular child's face and again the parents is to see that joy on the parents' faces once they know that oh my god my child's made such good progress I was quite worried, you know, you know that you're working in partnership with parents and the wider community to ensure that young people are successful. Yeah, amazing. I mean, from from my point of view, obviously I'm not somebody that's in, I'm not a teacher myself, but I've been in education, well, working with, alongside education for just under six years. And 
um, I know the hard work that you guys have been doing. So, Alicia, I'd just like to say thank you. You know, I mean, yes. it's not it's not something that we say to teachers as often as we should. Um, but hopefully, after this podcast, we will start getting some more recognition for for the industry for the for the teaching professionals that are working hard every day. So thank you so much for obviously getting your message out there and your journey and um, how things have been in the last like sort of seven months. And, and I really appreciate all the advice that you've given and all the feedback you've given, really. The most welcome. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, for watching and thanks Alicia for coming on. Um, guys, if you gave, if you did like it, give us a like and a subscribe and see you on the next episode. Cheers.